Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Well, last week was the men's retreat, and today is the women's retreat, and i got to say the view is way better from up here than what it was last week. (laughs) I love the retreat ministry. Um, We are seeing people's lives authentically changed. My wife was on this retreat helping to team, and um, she said it was just so meaningful watching and listening to people interact. And, you know, it's it's so funny how it always surprises us when we do those things that God told us to do and we see the result that God told us we would see. Uh, he says, confess your sins one to another. Turns out when you do that, people get very honest and they get healed. It says, bear one another's burdens and thus you fulfill the, the will of God. I mean, turns out that's true too. And so we seeing this in we are seeing this in the retreat ministry, and I'm so encouraged by it and grateful for it and would love to take credit for it, but I've really had nothing to do with it apart from just watch it. And uh, that's, that's a powerful, uh, just exciting thing to be a pastor and just watch the Holy Spirit move in the people and know that uh, you're not responsible for it and that, that other people have taken up that mantle. And uh, I'm very grateful for you guys and, and Audrey and your team and all y'all did. Thank you. Great job. And uh, may it just continue, right? Amy and I are getting old, and so we're watching hummingbirds. <laughs> it happens. We've got this big hummingbird feeder. Um, it's actually a Baltimore Oriole feeder, which is even more sad and pathetic because we watch Baltimore Orioles. We, we watch them enough to go out and spend money and buy a feeder for them. So that kind of tells you where we are in life. But it's interesting watching these hummingbirds eat at this Baltimore Oriole feeder. She's got some other smaller feeders too, but they don't seem very interested in those. They all want to meet up at the big feeder, you know. And uh, as you watch hummingbirds, you learn, you know, that they're little gangsters, hummingbirds are. I mean, you wouldn't think so and all the little hummingbird and all that, but they're really hateful, little mean-spirited things. Um in fact, well, there's one hummingbird that guards that feeder. He goes up on a little dead branch on the pecan tree, and any other hummingbird that tries to come and get a drink, he'll come flying down and bomb those other ones and run them all off. We call him the godfather. Um, he's like the 500-pound gorilla hummingbird. And I don't know why, but all the other hummingbirds are afraid of him. And I thought, you know, if I was a, if I was a hummingbird, I'd probably fight over that big feeder too. You know Why? Because there's more juice in it. And if you're a hummingbird, life is unpredictable and you don't know when you're going to run out of juice. So you want to be sure that you battle over the one with the most juice, right? And then I started thinking about this, and maybe this is pathetic too that I'm sitting around thinking about this kind of stuff, but I started thinking, is there really more juice in that big hummingbird feeder than in those small ones? Because Amy refills them all the time, they never run out. In fact, the truth is there's an unlimited supply of all the juice these birds would ever need to get all the food they ever want as long as they're coming to these feeders. And then I thought, if those little pea brain gangsters could ever wrap their little pointy beaks around that idea, then they could stop fighting. They could stop worrying. They could stop stressing. And they could enjoy life. And they could enjoy each other. Just everybody kind of, hey, everybody, let's... Belly up to the bar and let's, uh, let's all just feed at the big hummingbird feeder. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Bill, you 
are just like them. He said, I've already told you, I've got everything you'll ever need. In fact, I, I told you that, Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all your needs. He doesn't say some of them. He doesn't say temporarily. He says all your needs, I, I would assume for as long as you live, not according to your riches, but look at this, according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. But I just can't trust and so I just keep worrying. And I, when there's a pandemic, I hoard toilet paper and all that kind of stuff and do all these crazy, insane things. And, and rather than enjoy it, people, we compete for, for things and we compare and we criticize. You know, that's true of life. It's especially true of grace. When it comes to grace, the Bible is very clear. God has supplied all the grace we'll ever need for all the sin we'll ever do. I mean, isn't that what he said in the early part of Romans where, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more? The Scripture says this in Lamentations, His mercies begin afresh each morning. It's like grace is this big hummingbird feeder and He constantly keeps it totally supplied to cover every day. Not just the sins that I committed last year or yesterday, but the sins that I'm about to commit today. They're still under the grace of God because His mercies are fresh every morning. So you don't have to worry. You don't have to stress. You don't have to hate yourself. You don't have to always feel inadequate and feel as if you're not somehow going to measure up to some standard of perfection and you don't have to compare yourself and judge them to make yourself feel even better because God's already covered it in His grace. He's got all you're ever going to need. And because of that, you can start giving away that mercy that you received. You have enough mercy for yourself that there's plenty to give away because grace that is received should be grace that is given away. That's the essence of what the rest of the book of Romans is about. Let's get our Bibles. Let's turn to Romans chapter 12. The first 11 chapters of Romans, if I had to summarize this book, I would summarize it this way. The first 11 chapters are about the theology of grace. Everything is to help us understand that we are right before God, not by virtue of our performance, but by virtue of the sacrifice and the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, so that when I place my faith in Christ, He declares that which is unjust to be just. That's called justification. And for the rest of my life, the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in me to bring to bear the, the truth of God into my life so that my life begins to mirror what Christ has already said about me. So it's the theology of grace. The second part of Romans 12 through 16, the rest of the book is about living a gracious life. And between those two great ideas, the theology of grace, the practicality of grace, there's a hinge. It's just two verses. We looked at it last time. And this hinge is centered on worship. He says in Romans 12, 1, therefore, therefore, it's a result of everything that I've said about grace. I urge you by the mercies of God. There it is again, mercy and grace, indissolubly linked, intertwined, amalgamated. So get that idea. By the mercies of God, and here's our, here's our response to grace. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Remember last time we talked, 
that worship is not the song set of a Sunday morning service. Worship is the everyday living of a life that's devoted to the glory of God. That's worship. And so why would, uh, why would he put it that way? Piper said, before we can be merciful, we have to be worshipful. But why is that? Well, worship sorts out our priorities. Worship takes the emphasis off of me and puts the emphasis where it rightly should be on God and His glory. And that takes the focus off me. So now that the focus is off me, I can live a gracious life. And so Paul begins to talk about what it's going to look like when we live mercifully. uh, What it is to be people of grace. And he begins with the spiritual gifts. Now, in this passage, the spiritual gifts is not the main focus. It's it's illustrative of the more important principle. The central idea of this text is living a merciful life. But why would he talk about spiritual gifts in this context? And here's what I think. Graciousness is all about the value you place on yourself and the value you place on other people. And spiritual gifting is a great example of how this works. So look at verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. So here's the first principle. Stop overestimating yourself. That word think more highly means to overestimate. Stop overestimating yourself. I mean, don't we do that? It's so hard for us not to think that this whole thing's about me. And we come to church, it's like, man, I just didn't get much out of it. I mean, you know, it was the music was a little too loud. The sermon was a little too dull. I mean, yeah, maybe next week will be better if we don't have something better to do. You know, and it becomes really all about us, isn't it? That's kind of how we're taught. We're bred. We're, everything's in us. And, and consequently, we tend to overestimate our value. Reminds me of a story of... Uh, group of guys that were on an airplane over in Alaska, and Elon Musk, Joe Biden, Rick Warren, and a hippie. They're on one of those puddle jumpers over Alaska. And suddenly the engine stops. Pilot comes through the door. He says, guys, I've got some good news and some bad news. The bad news is we're going down. The good news is we have four parachutes. The bad news is there's five of us, and I've got one already. Good luck, and he jumps out of the airplane. That leaves three parachutes for four guys. Joe Biden jumps up and says, I'm the most powerful man in the world. The world needs powerful people. He puts on a parachute. He jumps out of the plane. Elon Musk stands up and he goes, look, I'm I'm the smartest guy in the world. This world needs smart people. So I need a parachute. He puts one on. He jumps out. Rick Warren and the hippie are sitting there, one parachute between them. Rick Warren looks at him and says, look, guy, I've lived a full and purpose-driven life. You've got your whole life before you. You take the last parachute. I'll go down with the plane. And the hippie said, relax, old man. Smartest man in the world just jumped out of this airplane wearing my backpack. (laughs) I love that story. That's a good one, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words... Don't overestimate yourself. Second principle is stop underestimating others. And this is really where it's at. Verse 3, but to think so as to have sound judgment, not to think more highly of himself, but to think so as to have sound judgment. As God has allotted, see that word allotted, divided and apportioned. In other words, designed and assigned. 
God has designed and assigned to each, that's every person, metron, a measure. It's where we get the word meter, a measure of faith. In other words, every person is uniquely designed by God to fill a purpose that God has preordained and established for their life. And here's what that means. Just because she's not like you does not mean that she's less than you. Just because he's not like you doesn't mean that he's less than you. Verse 4, for just as we have many members in one body, so he begins to talk about the body, and all the members do not have the same function, praxis, that word means enterprise, undertaking, project, job assignment. Just as we don't have the same assignment, we all have a role to play. We all have a life purpose. In other words, this is a body and every body part is essential. You see, here's the thing. We are called to manifest Jesus Christ to the world. And I can't do that by myself because I don't have all the gifts. Jesus had all these gifts that he's talking about. I don't have all those gifts. Because God in His sovereign wisdom decided to design us in such a way that we would need one another. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's another list of the gifts. In verse 18 it says, But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. You see that? It's, his, it's according to His plan. If they were all one member, where would the body be? Can you imagine a body that's just all one thing, just a big old ear? You know? <laughs> Now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And so here's the core idea from this. Being merciful means not overestimating my worth and not underestimating your worth. That's what he's talking about. Now, he doesn't say this, but the opposite is also true. It also means not underestimating my value and overestimating yours. Because sometimes we do that. Rather than overestimate our value, we tend to minimize our value and to look at ourselves as if we're unimportant, and, the, and that's not true either. Look at what he says in verse 3. Thinking with wisdom, but, but to think so as to have sound judgment. And that's a, that's a compound word, Sophia, and the idea of wisdom. Thinking with wisdom. In other words, seeing things as they really are. Uh, you don't think more highly of yourself. You don't think less of yourself. You don't think less of others. You don't think more highly of others. But you treat people as they are. You know, there's a bunch of kids one time, and they decided to build a playhouse, and they knew they needed some rules. So here's the rules they came up with. Nobody act too big. Nobody act too small. Everybody act medium. You know, that's really where graciousness lives, isn't it? It's everyone sort of being what they were designed to be. It's everyone realizing who they are. You say, so how do I do that? Well, you have to appreciate the value in everyone. Appreciate the value in everyone. Here's how it works. You are unique. You are unique. Now, that doesn't mean you're weird, okay? Sometimes, you know, you talk to your husband, you go, you know, you're really unique, uh, that's not a good thing. That's not a compliment. But in this case, it is. You're unique. And there are lots of things that go into making you unique. You know, it's not just your fingerprints and your DNA that makes you unique. You're unique in every aspect of life. And there's, there's more to go into here than we can, but let me just kind of simplify it. We're, we're born with bents, okay? Does that work for you? We all come pre-bent. We have certain 
inclinations and bents. Now, we all share a common bent. The common bent that we all have is that we're all bent towards sin. The minute you're born, that Adamic nature inherited from the fall is within you, and that nature to sin is driving your life. And, and if you don't think that's inherent, in, even in babies and children, you've never had a baby. I don't call them babies, I call them little dictators. And they say that a baby will reach for control in the first week of its life. If you don't believe in the inherent nature to sin, you never volunteered in the church nursery. <laughs> Trust me, nobody taught them that. Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. Now look at this, encircle this. There is no one. That doesn't say there, there are a few. There are many. It says there is no one who does good, not even one. And look, this is a key difference between the prevailing secular worldview and the biblical worldview of the nature of man. The intellectuals would say that children are born with a good nature and that experiences in life or circumstances will bend them in a, in a wrong way. Yeah, I actually had this on a, on a counseling test in, in school. It said, unless deterred in some way, a child will naturally develop in a positive direction. And I knew what the teacher wants, so I, I put true, I put a T for true, but beside it I went, not really. But that's the, that's the idea of the world, and that's coming out of the intellectual set. Now, you know when I say intellectuals, I'm not talking about smart people. I'm talking about people who are identified as intellectuals. This is a group of people who sit around and, and traffic in the, in, the, in, the idea, in, the, in the world of ideas. They're basically idea people. It's the philosophies. Uh, if you go to the academics, it's the social sciences, the philosophies, the arts, the literature, that kind of thing. Those are known as the intellectuals. The doctors, the engineers, the super smart people not thought of as intellectuals, though, because they deal in the pragmatic world. And in that world of ideas, they have somehow concocted this, this idea that people are essentially good, and you got the concept of the noble savage, which means that if somebody goes bad, then somebody must have done something to cause them to go bad. And so whereas we used to live in a world where if you saw a bad kid walking down the side of the road, they'd go, there goes a bad kid. But now they say, there goes a bad parent. And this is at the core of, of everything that is causing this victim culture. Wickedness is someone else's fault if somebody goes bad. The Bible teaches a very different thing. The Bible says we're born with a bent towards sinning. In other words, if left to himself, a child will not develop in a positive and healthy direction. He or she will become a barbarian. And as a parent, our calling is to not only instill a sense of worth and value in that child, but to also instill a sense of discipline and to, and to teach them the consequences and the correlation between action and consequences so that they learn self-discipline. 
And we spend a lot of time and energy trying to train out that barbarian because if you don't do it, you're going to live in a world of barbarians. And that's where we are right now. You've got barbarians in the school. You've got barbarians at Walmart. You've got barbarians on the road. You've got barbarians everywhere you go. You've even got barbarians in church. Because somebody thought that man was essentially good and if we just left them alone, they would develop positively. And the exact opposite is true. But I've got to say this, even then, no amount of parenting in the world can change that bent. You see, sin's in our nature. We're bent toward it, and there's nothing natural that we can do to change that. That's why all the self-help stuff isn't going to affect it. uh, Jeremiah 13.23, Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And this is why redemption and salvation are so important. When we come to Jesus in a, you know, by giving our lives to Christ by faith, our sins are forgiven. And man, that's awesome. My sins are forgiven. My past is forgotten. My future is secured. But we're also filled with the Holy Spirit and the power of God to transform our lives. And in that moment of conversion, the Bible says the old goes away and all things are made new. Ezekiel compares it to a heart transplant. It says he takes out that heart of flesh and uh, and replaces, uh, takes out that heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are made new. A new creature, a new species of being that didn't exist before. Your nature has changed. That doesn't mean that you're never going to struggle with sin because that old nature is still residual, what Paul called the flesh. And the battle between the new nature and the old nature and and who wins that battle defines our sanctification. Are Are you with me? But that transformation is only possible in the spiritual There's this beautiful line in the old Wesleyan hymn, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling. It says, Breathe, O breathe, Thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in Thee inherit. Let us all find that second rest. Here it is. Take away our bent to sinning, Alpha and Omega B. End of faith as its beginning set our hearts at liberty. And so we all have this common bent. But beyond that, we all come with unique bents. I mean, we all come bent. We we come pre-bent. Any parent with more than one child knows this. You didn't make that little guy the way he is. He came that way. He came into your world with, with a certain bent and certain inclination. No two children are exactly the same. Every one of them comes pre-programmed. There's this old wrong assumption called the blank slate that we're all just blank slates and you're just going to write whatever you want on that child's heart. It just doesn't work that way. One of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible is Proverbs 22.6. It says this, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And we always took that to mean that if I drag my kid to church and I make sure he's in every phase of church and that he's going to somehow get that seed planted that no matter how bad he becomes later in life, eventually he's going to come back around. And there's a kernel of truth in that. Those seeds that you embed in your child at an early age uh, uh, have consequences and results uh, of which you cannot predict in the future. But that is not the core of what that verse means because in the Hebrew, the idea is train up a child according to his way. 
That's what it literally means. Train up a child according to his way. In other words, train up a child in keeping with the way he should go. And so as a parent, as a wise parent, you study your child, you learn your child, you realize that unique bent, and then you train that child because you can shape him within the confines of that bent. You can't take him or her and make her what she's not, but you can help her to discover all the possibilities of who God has designed her to be. And so in your training, you're training them according to the design God already had on them. In other words, we come pre-bent. We've got different personalities. We've got different passions. I've got a little grandson who loves tractors, everything about tractors. He knows the difference at two years old between a, a, a John Deere and a Kubota and between a, a, a harvester and a, you know, a sprayer. He knows more about tractors than I do. I didn't do that to him. He just came that way. Some are sanguine and joyful. Some are cleric and serious. Some are drawn to people. Some are drawn to things. It's just that way. So you've got your bent, and and that shapes you. And then you've got your history. See, in addition to the bents, we have these unique life experiences. The hurts and heartaches, the wins, the joys, all leave us uh, with a lasting mark. And those things begin to impress on us. And they're by design. God takes us through the things we go through in life to teach us about Him, to teach us about ourselves, and to teach us about other people. And sometimes those things are, are happy and positive. Sometimes they're not. But all of it forms into what we would call your life story, your life message. A wise man said, we don't live in the past, but the past lives in us. And then there are the spiritual gifts. See, all those other things are natural. Everybody gets those, but not everybody gets a spiritual gift. You only receive a spiritual gift when you become a follower of Jesus. And the spiritual gifts are spiritual and they're for ministry. And we'll unpack that more hopefully next time. If we have time, if Jesus doesn't come back between now and next week, we'll pick this up again. Um, but uh, for now, let's let the main point be the main point. And the main point of this is uh, that what he's making is we're different by design. And part of the design is for us to need each other. That's what it's all about. You are unique. And the second part of that is you are incomplete. Verse 5, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. God designed me to need you. He designed you to need me. That's how we were put together. And so I'm incomplete without you and you're incomplete without me. I need you, you need me. So here it is. Every person with a different gift offers a unique contribution, and together we build a composite of what Jesus looks like. Our job is to show the world Jesus. If we're going to be the body of Christ, which is the living representation of Christ on this earth, we have to do it together because none of us can do it completely alone. And you know what that means? It means that we won't always see things the same way. It means we won't always do things the same way. It means we may not always even like each other. I'm not everybody's cup of tea. There's some people that just can't stand the way I preach. I mean, that's just the way it is. Uh, early in ministry one time, I sent my grandmother a tape of a sermon. And not long after that, I was over at her house and Mamaw said, Billy, I got that sermon you sent me, and I listened to the whole thing. I said, you did, Mamaw? What would you think? And she said, you know what? You should hear your cousin Howard speak. <laughs> He's the best preacher I think I've ever heard. 
I just went, thanks, Mama. I, I think, you know. Blake will tell you, he's, he's got women in this church that will walk up to him and say, I love you, but I hate your music. <laughs> thanks for noticing me. You know, some people don't like me. That used to eat me up, you know, because I want everybody to like me. But then I realized one day, I don't like everybody either. You know, <laughs> I mean, you never hear a preacher admit that, but you know, we're just not always everybody's cup of tea. Here's the thing. We don't have to always like each other. We do have to always value each other. I may not necessarily like you or your, your methods or your personality or whatever, but you have a unique design. And you were designed and assigned to do things that I can't do. And so for us to complete each other, we have to see that value. I might not be your preference, but I am your complement. And so we're different and essential. And, and gifts allow us to complete each other. Look at 12 verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, or I guess you could say differently. Let me paraphrase that. Grace is letting you be you. Grace is letting me be me. That's called grace. And Jesus gave it to me, and it's my job to give it away. So stop competing and start completing. Everybody doesn't have to be like you. And when we realize that, we're so close to mercy and grace, right? During World War II, Ed Sullivan... You younger guys, Google him. Ed Sullivan later on became a television personality. He had this show. It was the most ironic thing because he had no personality, but he was a television personality. And he would go, there's a really big show tonight. That's how he would do it. He's the guy that brought us Elvis. He brought Beatles to the States. That's, that's, Elvis. that's uh, Sullivan. But in World War II, Sullivan was putting on a show for a, a hospital, a GI hospital called Halloran General Hospital on Staten Island. And somebody had heard that Jimmy Durante was in town. Jimmy Durante's in a Googling. Big nose, sang, did comedy, did a bit, you know. Ha-cha-cha-cha-cha. No? Okay. Jimmy Durante, huge in World War II. So they're going to put on this big show for this GI hospital. They hear Durante's in town. Ed Sullivan rings him up at the Astor and says, hey, we've got this show going on. Can you come? He said, well, I've got a really bad cold. I've got two very important radio programs I've got to do that afternoon. I really can't. I'll tell you what, I'll come. I'll do one song. I'm off. He's like, Great. And so word gets out, Durante's coming, it's huge, everybody's excited, all the hospitals. Well, about that time, this ship liner called the Gripsholm comes into port in New York City carrying all kinds of wounded vets. Most of them had been prisoners of war in Japan. And it just so happened they arrived. So the, the guys that are in the hospital give deference to those guys coming off of this ship, and they say, look, we want these guys to have the best seats. So they put them on basically essentially cots and couches on the first two rows. And so Durante comes out, everybody goes nuts, and he goes to the piano and he does his song, and he, he gets up and he starts to walk off stage, and Sullivan comes walking out, goes, that's Jimmy Durante, you know, and everybody's going crazy, and Durante stops him, goes back to the piano, and does a whole nother bit. And then when he's done with that, he does another set. He winds up doing 30 minutes. And then 
Sullivan walks out, introduces the next act that's coming up after Durante, and then he walks backstage and he says to, to Jimmy Durante, are you out of your mind? You're never going to make the ferry. You're going to miss those radio shows. Durante told him to look out on the front row of the audience. He said, when I saw that, Ed, I made up my mind that my radio broadcast wasn't so important. My code wasn't so important either. And Sullivan put his head through the curtain and saw two young lieutenants in the center divan and they had each lost an arm and were applauding by clapping their two remaining hands together. I don't know of a better way to describe church than two one-armed men applauding. They were doing together what they could no longer do alone. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been in ministry, believe it or not, 42 years doing this. I had a deacon one time say, don't tell everybody how long you've been in ministry. He said, that doesn't mean you've done anything. <laughs> he said, you know, you can, you can tie a mule to a barn. He can tell everybody, I've been pulling that barn for 30 years, but the barn ain't never moved. <laughs> Here's what I've learned. Two things. I need Jesus, and I need you. That's what I've learned. All my experience. We need Jesus because we have this bent towards sinning. And nothing we ever do to try to rectify that is going to make it any difference. The leopard can't change his spots. You need transformation. You don't need renovation. You need Christ to change your heart, to change your life. And if you've never done that, that's where you need to be right now to receive the gift of grace because God's got all the grace you'll ever need to cover all the sin you've ever done. And you can do that this morning just right where you are. But you know, I don't just need Jesus, I need you. Because I'm incomplete. God designed me to need you. Every one of you is better than me at something. And you need me. And when I realize that, I no longer think so highly of myself and I, I no longer think so less of others. And when I reach that point, there's a word for that. You know what we call it? Gracious. And when you reach that point, you become merciful and you let Him be Him and you be you and together God does more than we could have ever done alone. You ready for that? Some of you guys are harboring some junk. Some people have hurt you. You're mad about it. Some of you are harboring some pride. You've been doing some comparison. You're competing instead of completing. You're like a little 500-pound hummingbird guarding your feeder. And God's like, I've got everything you need and more. If you received grace, the grace you receive is the grace you give. So why don't you take that person that you're holding out on, and you give them the same mercy that Jesus gave you. Would you do that this morning? Let's just spend some time doing that right now. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you need Jesus in this moment, here's the prayer. God, I, I need Jesus. I just give myself to you fully right now. You got me, Lord. I don't even have all the right words. I don't know what to say, but I just place my faith in Christ. Here's my sin. Here's my past. Here's my life. Change me. Say that prayer to me. If you have Jesus, is there somebody in your world right now that needs the grace and the mercy that you were given? Right now, here it is. God, 
forgive me for holding on to what you gave me to give away. And so that same grace that you gave me to forgive me, I forgive them. I forgive that boss. I forgive that church person. I forgive that family member. I forgive that ex. I forgive my kids. I forgive my parents. And Father, I'm going to live by mercy. I'm going to live by grace. Father, we admit our pride and we lay that at your feet. Take it away. For us not to think more highly of ourselves. Take it away. And Father, give us wisdom to see this world the way you do. Every person with is, is the image of God and to love them and value them the way Jesus does. So we release whatever pride we have. We release our bitterness. We release our, our competition and our fear and our worry. We lay that at the cross. And we thank you for salvation in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.